My name's Emily and I'm an osteopath and healthcare enthusiast working in the Midlands. I spend every week helping my patients reduce their aches and pains, move their bodies more and live the healthiest life possible. And now I want you to join the conversation. In this podcast, I'll be investigating the people and places around the Midlands that are on the same mission and ask them to share their knowledge to transform your health. There's no subject that's off topic. Nutrition, mental health, sleep and fitness, it's all here. This is the Healthy Midlands Podcast. So today's guest is my colleague Samantha from Ebrocosteopathy and Sports Clinic. Samantha and I have worked together for quite a long time now, haven't we, Sam? Yeah, just over four years. Just over four years, 2017, when you first graduated from the European school. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All the way back then. We've had like quite a nostalgic week, really, haven't we? Because we've had our colleague Hans, who we've worked with for all that time, has just moved to Switzerland Literally yeah. today, actually, as we yeah, record this, today. he's on the plane over. So, Aww, <laughs> yeah. So it's been we've been kind of like how t- the last week where we've done quite a lot of reminiscing and of those yeah. early days when we were <laughs> in Boldmere Road. Um, so much has changed. I know, and I mean, one of the things that have changed quite profoundly is that until you started working at this practice, we didn't treat any babies at all. And now... <laughs> <laughs> and now it's one of the things that, you know, we get quite a lot of phone calls every week about babies whose parents are... The, the baby's in distress and the parent's in distress and they want to try and find some solutions for problems that they're encountering in those first few months of life. And that's what we're going to talk about today, really, isn't it, Sam? Yes. <laughs> we're going to be talking about how cranial osteopathy is a little bit different from regular osteopathy and especially how it's quite different from osteopathy in the rest of the practice. So uh, let's start off with cranial. What is cranial osteopathy? Well, cranial, it's a very gentle form of treatment. Like, if you were to watch somebody do a treatment, it wouldn't look like you were doing pretty much <laughs> anything. We work through through the bones of the head. Yeah. Like we like to have a fr- freedom of movement, but sometimes, like, there can be one side that, that moves a little bit freer than the other, so we just try and create a little bit more balance, which then helps the whole body to relax, which... It's perfect for babies. So people think about babies' heads as being very different from adult heads because when we're born, the bones of the skull haven't all fused together yet. Yeah. And you have those soft spots on the top of babies' heads. Um, uh, correct me, because I think there's more than one, and they're called fontanelles. Yeah, yeah so we have a couple. Right? <laughs> Where yes. are they? There's one on the top, like a big one yeah, on the top. Yeah, and then you have a couple on the side and at the back. <laughs> and then, But ha- it's the main one that you feel... At the top of the he- at the top of the head, because that's one to look out for, isn't it? That it can tell you quite a lot about what's going on with that baby. If the baby's like de, I know that there's a yeah. sign where they if they're a bit dehydrated, like it sucks in a little yeah. bit. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if they've had a bit of a quite a lot going on, sometimes it can sort of swell up. 
yeah. as well. But then that's something to sort of monitor because it can be. Yeah, a sign that something is not quite right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we, we do think about cranial a lot in terms of babies because we think about the bones as being separate in the skull and that they yeah. can that they can move and that they move freely and they have the kind of like a moving relationship with each other. Yeah. But cranial osteopathy is also good for adults. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I use it quite a lot if patients have got migraines, really severe headaches, just because it's that gentler, gentler approach. Because if you're having migraines and headaches, anything can set it. Yeah, the absolute oh. last thing that you want to do is kind of lie down on a treatment table and be rugged around and you're yeah. already in pain and feeling a little bit delicate. And you don't want to add anything to that. No, thank you. It doesn't sound good. But cranial is this, like you say, very, very gentle, quiet kind of treatment. I think, I mean, I really, really don't know an awful lot about cranial. It's not in my bag at all. Um, Perhaps it should be. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of old school osteopaths who would be horrified to hear that I don't do any cranial Mm -hmm. at all. and it's, it is a real kind of classical staple for traditional osteopathy. It, I've never really gotten on very well with it. I think it's because I'm quite impatient. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it is that slow, gentle, kind of like very... Yeah, and you have to wait a lot as well. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't know whether that really... It didn't appeal to me much when I was at university... And then when I started working, it didn't appeal to me. But you went to a different university to me. Samantha went to the European School of Osteopathy, and they've got a real focus on cranial techniques. And I think that the tutoring there is really, really good. Yeah, because we started our cranial sort of lectures in, like, second... I think we did maybe a couple in first year, but it really started from second year. And then once you got into third and fourth year... You were having a weekly, yeah. weekly lecture, so it was. Yeah, whereas though I really wasn't introduced to it until I was in the final year of my masters, and by that point, you've got enough going. Well, my only <laughs> focus was getting out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really, I didn't learn much about it. And then when you arrived at the practice in 2017, and you had all of this skill for cranial osteopathy, and you were interested in treating babies. I knew that it was a door that we could start to open for the practice and it's it's been not to use too like of an obvious metaphor but it's been your baby (laughs) (laughs) developing that and getting a reputation amongst local families in Sutton Coalfield and then over the last year in Litchfield and we honestly like we just can't fulfill the demand sometimes of the number of parents who are trying to get in with you is is insane yeah and it's taken a really big sort of increase since lockdown yeah as well I can imagine and it's do you think it's because of like restricted access to services or I think so yeah because I know it's it's more trickier to get hold of GPs and health visitors weren't able to go out at the start yeah I think there was a real vibe of um people thinking that they didn't want to bother their healthcare workers for something that was not a big problem if your baby is bringing up after every bottle and it's a bit of an inconvenience and you think that the baby's like not having a great time but it's it is normal to a certain extent isn't it and so where's that line between 
a baby who has not a normal amount of reflux and a baby who needs to see someone yeah well I always ask like how much are they being sick because some babies will have a lot of projectile vomit Mm. straight after a feed so they're covered mom and dad's are covered the walls are covered (laughs) and that's definitely a time to (laughs) to see some but also if they're bringing it up straight away and it's quite it's quite large amounts as well that's always time Mm. to to see to see somebody but if they're just sort of bringing up a, a tiny bit, and it's not after every feed. Yeah, I think no. this is probably a good junction at which to talk about the reasons that people go to see cranial uh, osteopaths with their yeah. babies. Sorry, yeah. hang on, I'll do that again because I stumbled. <laughs> I think this is a really good junction at which to talk about reasons why parents might bring their babies to see cranial osteopaths. It's a bit of a muddy area, really, isn't it? Because there's not a vast amount of scientific research to prove or disprove cranial osteopathy in the first place, and then there's less even still to prove or disprove it in the treatment of different infant conditions. Yeah. But I think that I think that the reason for that is that it's such an acute moment when these things happen, and for like most babies with colic and reflux, it will resolve eventually by itself anyway. And yeah. so, if you're going to conduct a research study into one specific treatment effect on that specific time, specifically mm. in babies, like from a logistical point of view, gathering all of these variables into one research study is pretty difficult to do. Um, And so we really only have anecdotal evidence to rely on. Um, But that anecdotal evidence is strong enough that between parents who live in the West Midlands, you can't move for babies who are being brought in to see you. (laughs) Yeah, so even though it's not massively strong, it it still helps. And I think when you have young children, having a personal word-of-mouth recommendation to go and see somebody is really important isn't it and that's probably advice you would take advice from a friend yeah especially because cranial osteopathy on babies it's not very well known yeah especially around here yeah (laughs) so for some parents they're like oh I have no idea what that is so I think it's definitely good to come from yeah come from someone else because we don't massively advertise like we're not on like tv adverts or the radio so it's quite yeah how would you find out about it I always think that it's hilarious because different cultures have different attitudes to um, kind of infant treatments or taking their babies anywhere. I think mm. we're quite passive in the UK, really, unless something's yeah. a big problem and the baby stays at home and you get the yeah. health visitor come and do a check-in and, you know, it's kind of all, like, quite within the confines of the home. But I always think it's... You can tell French people love a cranial osteopath. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They love it. And if you hear, um, it's sometimes I pick up the phone and it's a French accent on the other end asking for a, an osteopathy appointment for a baby. And it's so natural to them that they would, yeah. it, of course you would take your baby, whether they've encountered a feeding problem, whether they've encountered a sleeping problem, whether they've encountered um, like a, a movement problem in their neck or not. It yeah. is literally just in their kind of, collective social conscience yeah, that they, they just, do that yeah they just bring babies in for a bit of an mot yeah it's par for the course isn't it yeah because i know in france they'll have an osteopath for for life yeah so it's like the the person that they will ring up for and it's like a anything. family thing yeah. your mom goes there your brother goes there yeah, gra- grandparents will all go to the same 
the same one and it's so yeah. different I mean well we say it's so different it, I mean but we although have... my whole family comes to an Austin brand so <laughs> well and you know we have like multiple generations I think yeah. we might be up to four generations of particular families who come to see us in the clinic at this point <laughs> I think so <laughs> <laughs> and um Oh, it's still, it's a lovely way to work, but um, kind of, I guess, swinging back round to the point a little bit, we could, we could quite easily go off on tangents <laughs> left, right and centre here, but what are the main reasons that you see babies in practice? Yeah, so I think, yeah, it's babies that are suffering from some reflux symptoms, so if they're, they're bringing up a lot of milk pretty much after every feed, they can't lie down comfortable yeah if they're struggling to bring up any wind and then that sort of links with feeding difficulties yeah as well like I see a lot of babies with tongue tie so sometimes I'll assess them first and then they'll they'll go to a specialist they'll have a procedure and then we'll see them afterwards yeah as well and I think that's important to say is that um I know we have an attitude inside of our clinic environment where if we do an assessment and it turns out that that patient isn't appropriate for our care they need something more they need to see a specialist they need to see a consultant they need to get the tongue tie procedure done um, or if they're an adult patient let's say they need to have an MRI they need to have a blood test they need to go and see um, an occupational therapist or somebody different I know that we have this collective attitude amongst the practitioners who all work together here it's not our job to chase patients down the road of useless treatments it's Mm -hmm. our job to direct them to the services that they need to get to Um, and that I think is particularly important in the pediatric work because babies operate on a lot faster timeline so it's not a case of like being like oh well we'll do eight treatments and we'll see what happens well that's no good because you've had a screaming baby for six weeks at that point or eight weeks at that point and that baby's not getting any better so your ability to identify this baby needs to go back to the health visitor this baby needs to go to the gp this baby needs to go to the lactation consultant that's vital for pediatric practice yeah, and I think, yeah, it's really important to know where those contacts are yeah. so that we can refer straight away. And especially because, like, yeah, I may see a baby at six weeks and they're, 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 fe- they're feeding, it's just on bottle or, or breastfed. But if you leave it a couple of months, yeah. then, the, <laughs> then things have changed completely for them. Yeah, it's just about getting, it, getting the whole thing right as soon as possible, Yeah, and because it? their development, like you say, is so fast yeah. as well, they change week week by week. Yeah. I mean, I know sometimes I'll see babies and they'll look like a, a really tiny baby one week. The next week, they've doubled in size. <laughs> but even just size just changes so much with treatments. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it has to do as well with it's not just the baby that you treat when no it's definitely a family treatment yeah so whoever brings that baby in the appointment is as much for them as it is for the baby yeah and I think I see a lot of parents that look very tired when they've had a screaming baby for yeah quite a few weeks so I always think if we can get baby a little bit more comfortable sleeping a little bit more than mum and dad yeah. <laughs> our guardians are so much yeah I remember seeing this one lady and um, she'd been a patient of mine. This was this must have been the cu- in the couple of years before um, 
you had started working mm-hmm. at the practice and she came in and she said oh you know she had this newborn baby I say newborn kind of like under under four months old and um she said oh god you know I just can't catch a break I can't take the baby mm-hmm. out with me every time I put her in the car seat she just arches her back she won't sit in it she screams mm-hmm. she won't relax and um I I don't know anything about treating babies, but I was like, that's not great. Mm. Um, And the the more I sort of asked her questions, she was like, oh, I just, you know, she was exhausted and she Mm. couldn't put a finger on what was going on. And in the end, um, I reluctantly agreed to see the baby. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the lady said... We did the assessment and the baby, she literally couldn't turn her head to one side. Mm -hmm. She could go the one way, but she couldn't really go the other way. And um, I said, oh, she's really struggling to move her head that way. Mm. And... And I said, has she been assessed for torticollis? Oh, yeah, no, the, you know, every, everybody's looked at her and nobody can tell me why she can't turn her head that way. Mm. Um, and so we kind of went through some little exercises that she could do at mm. home, dragging a toy around to that yeah. side to get the baby's attention. And I, I started asking more and more questions and it turned out that the Moses basket was like pushed against the wall in the corner of the room. And the lady would lay the baby in the Moses basket with a head under, like, the hood part. Okay. You know, like, they've got a front and a back end yeah. to them, these Moses baskets with, like, a little shade thing on. Yeah. And um, she said, you know, she just lies in her Moses basket and she looks at me and she's okay looking that way. And I was like, would you ever lie her in it the other way around? So that she has to turn her head the other way to look into the room. And she went, oh, that wouldn't make sense because the shade's on the other side. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, have I just tweaked it? Yeah. <laughs> have I just figured it out? <laughs> I said, move the Moses basket. <laughs> move it around. <laughs> but it's bizarre, isn't it? Because you fall into these habits as a parent. You don't even think. You don't even no. think about it. That baby's spending most of her... If her mum's pottering around doing little jobs in the room, it's all over one shoulder. And that, over the course of three or four months, she's got used to only ever looking over the one way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I recommend a lot to a lot of parents, especially with the cots, that there isn't... A side, A, a yeah. particular side. I said, turn... Just put them in the the other way. But it's like cognitive bias, isn't it? Let's because see, when yeah. we get into bed, yeah, I we always, always put our head on the pillow. The same side. Babies don't even have pillows, but we've got this like preset thing <laughs> where like there's a head end and a foot end. And a foot end. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so silly, really, isn't yeah. it? But then that kind of environmental thing can change the way and like you said it happens so quickly because yeah, so they're developing at such a fast rate yeah so you have to be really quick when that lady started putting the baby in the Moses basket the baby probably couldn't even turn her own head to direct towards noise that's it but yeah <laughs> now and then now it's just give it a easy. couple of months <laughs> and you've got a one-sided baby and then that poor lady I mean she's trying to breastfeed she can only feed out of the one side because yeah, the baby won't turn her head the other way no. <laughs> So it is this, it's like this 360 degree take on what's happening with the baby and the parents together. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, a combination of, yeah. of the whole 
family environment. You've got to be like a real detective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I normally go through the case history, so we ask all, all the questions to find out exactly what's going on. But I get most of my information when I actually have the baby on the couch yeah. and start just having a little chat with mum and dad. Or, it all starts or just coming mom, out. Or, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, yeah, we'll have a grandparent in and you just start, and then the detective work, you slowly, slowly. figure out all the little bits of information and you weave them together to get a a proper picture of what's going on yeah (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) so tell me about some babies maybe some examples of what you would see in the clinic regularly yes and usually I see babies around about six weeks old I mean, I had um, a patient in a, a couple of weeks ago, mum and dad, very, very tired. Oh. <laughs> they came in just sort of help, <laughs> tried everything. Like they'd been to the, the GP, spoke to the health visitor. He was, ga- he was gaining weight, <laughs> feeding fine. So, so all on paper looks no, okay. Yeah, no concerns, but he can't sleep on his lying down. He oh. o- only can sleep upright on mum or dad I mean that's a pretty common thing you yeah. hear that a lot don't you and then oh the minute I put them down they wake back up again yeah and they said we're desperate for sleep so we're sitting sleeping sitting upright and taking it in shifts yeah and they said yeah one of us will do the start of the night and then because dad's back at work because this yeah. baby was only six weeks old yeah. but dad only got the two weeks off for paternity I mean like we can talk about that till the cows come home and try to uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> I try to keep it clean on the podcast and not talk about politics and work policies yeah. and yeah, how things are <laughs> how things are so uneven yeah. but that is I mean two weeks to have a newborn baby yeah, it's, what a joke I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's not a lot of time it's not a lot of time yeah and I think that makes the shift work at night even harder because oh no the poor chap's on shift work as well oh god yeah so it, so sometimes dad ends up being into the into the other room just so he can get some sleep because he's got a function yeah. all day at work oh god although then mum's and she's also working oh but, no but <laughs> oh crisis so it's so these are two people who the the kind of reserve is running low very low yeah <laughs> and then baby gets to about four o'clock and their words were it's the witching hour Witching hour at 4 a.m.? At 4 p.m. Oh, uh, yeah. It, until about sort of 8, 9 o'clock, and this baby was just so unhappy. That is so, a long witching hour. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it's just for a few hours, but... For the <laughs> that's, that's a decent chunk, that. Yeah, and as soon as the clock strikes four, baby screams and said, this isn't just a normal baby scream, this is a good old <laughs> sort of top of lungs top of the lungs so are you killing me Sam what was it what well, was the problem I, well I, I had a little feel his tummy was so so tender oh so it, it sounded like he'd got a little bit of colic symptoms yeah but on, on top of all that as well every time he was feeding he was also unsettled as well yeah so I said okay well we'll we'll have a feel for the colic we'll have a feel for if there's some tension around his tummy into his back which which there was I also said I think it's going to be worth nipping to the GP because he might have a bit of a cow's milk allergy so he'd got a combination of so something's going in irritating his gut yeah oh and they can't tell you can you yeah and he was so he ended up struggling with wind 
out of the bottom end Ooh, as well. Yeah, so gassy. It, yeah, and then he was only going a couple of once, like in sort of two or three days. Oh uh, yeah. So he was doing a, a lovely explosive. So was he on formula that baby, or was he on breast milk? He was on breast milk. because uh, I have heard this that if you drink, if you you're breastfeeding yeah. a baby and you drink cow's milk, that the correct me if I'm wrong, that there can be proteins or something that get get yeah. come with the breast milk. That's it, yeah, so it can do a bit of a cr- crossover. And that baby's tummy was too sensitive. Yeah. Oh, poor thing. And because the gut is like the last thing to form when the when they're in the womb, like even though it's all good, it's all good to go, but it's not fully matured. So yeah. if there's any sensitivity, it just ends up ten times, yeah. ten times worse for them. And that's why babies can have cow's milk allergy when they're young and then grow out of it by the time they're a bit older. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then it becomes, if if there is if it is because it's cow's milk, then mum then has to go on a dairy-free diet, yeah. which is quite tricky because. I know I was speaking to the mum, she said she'd, she tried a couple of things, but she was shocked at how much dairy is in things that you wouldn't even think about. She said she had a, a bag of crisps and she didn't oh. think about checking the ingredients. Oh, they use it as a bonding agent sometimes, yeah. don't they, to get like, the flavour to stick to the crisps. Yeah, yeah, so she had these crisps and then fed baby and was like, well, why are these oh, so upset? No. Until she was like, well, let me just off a whim let's just check the ingredients and it was oh gosh no that's <laughs> awful i know because you're you're tried very hard to be dairy free yourself don't yeah. you sam and that's hard enough isn't yeah. it and you haven't kind of even got to think about what the repercussions are beyond yourself that's it yeah i only <laughs> have to think about me yeah. <laughs> never mind somebody else oh but it shocks me sometimes it's like oh i just didn't even think about eating that and yeah, and you've got to be careful. Yeah. It is in. I mean, it, there's so many things. Unless you're going to cook everything from absolute scratch, yeah, it's it's really really difficult to modify your diet to that end, especially when it's only for a short period of time. Really, while you're breastfeeding, that's it. Yeah, you don't have time yeah. to figure it all out. If you're yeah. going dairy free for yourself and it's like a lifetime endeavor, you make little mistakes and you trip up on the way. But after a few years. You know, you just can smooth the kinks out. You like learn your lesson the hard way sometimes, but you learn your lesson as you go. And and but with the breastfeeding thing, it's kind of like if you make a mistake, it's the consequences are yeah, a lot more far-reaching. Yeah, yeah. And because I see a a lot of mums that that they want to keep breastfeeding for as long as they can, but sometimes the dairy just it becomes quite difficult. So then they. Yeah. end up making the switch before they planned to as well. Yeah, before they wanted to. Oh, but that's, I mean, all of that is part of how you help treat those babies and parents, isn't it? Is to support yeah. them in those things and, yeah. and give them guidance on it as well. Yeah. You know, referring out to the GP and getting the baby tested for cow's milk allergy is great, but the GP doesn't really have time to sit with the parents and be like, look, this isn't your fault he's still going to get all of the nutrition that he needs you just need to do this because it's the best way to support him don't feel guilty it's really common yeah it's it's nothing you know that you could have done differently and that you can kind of counsel them through that and give them support whereas I at the moment NHS services it's kind of like you get your answer and you're done and just do yeah. you don't get to kind of like sit there and work out how you feel about it all and you know you don't have to you have to be blind at 
in this society not to see the way that mums really beat themselves up and feel really guilty over yeah. a lot of the decisions that they do make or don't make for their newborn babies. Yeah, and especially with the cow's milk allergy, you know, lots of mums say, well, why? Yeah. And it's not and it's not their fault, it's just... <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things. Yeah. It's all in the gut development, isn't it? That's it, yeah. And they have until they're about 12 weeks old and until that gut... So it should be fully ma- fully mature. Yeah. But then that's still 12 weeks of an unhappy baby. Yeah. And 12 weeks of an unhappy baby is a lot. It's a long time. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a precious time of life where you want to be... You sa- want to be enjoying yeah, that. savouring it and really enjoying it. And, and you don't want to miss any of those development steps because yeah. they're precious. But well, you also don't want to look back on it and remember it as being a living hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While you were sleep deprived and... That's it. Like, your baby's screaming and you two parents are screaming at each other as well well. yeah you want to just enjoy that start to becoming a family yeah so apart from obviously all of you work as a family (laughs) counsellor it does end up being a little bit like that you throw a bit of cranial osteopathy in there as well yeah Yeah, and the amazing thing I find with cranial is most babies they, they fall asleep through, through the treatments. Which, God, if you've had a screaming baby for six weeks, is that not just the sweetest sight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely when you're there, uh, you know, arms above their heads, completely crashed out. Totally relaxed. Yeah. And I bet they feel like they need it by that point as well, don't yeah. they? Because they've been suffering as well, poor little things. I know. And the big sort of um, reaction to treatment that babies have is they'll go really sleepy afterwards as well. <gasps> I mean... That's worth it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes they'll just sleep then for the rest of the day. Oh, lovely. Oh. So at least then parents can have, <laughs> have a cup of tea. Have a cup of tea and a rest. And a, ha- and a happy baby. They've absolutely earned it. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Sam. That's no problem. I think that we've had a couple of little case studies in there and given some examples of what cranial osteopathy treatment might look like. Um, And if you're curious about cranial osteopathy treatment, either for yourself or for your baby, you can find Samantha at either of our clinics. She works in Sutton Coalfield and Litchfield, and you can find her at ebrookosteopathy.co.uk. Thanks, Sam. No problem. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Midlands podcast. Make sure to hit the follow button so that you can be the first to know when the next episode is up. Leave a review or share this podcast with a friend if you found it useful. And for more, come and find us on Instagram at Healthy Midlands. <laughs>